Matthew chapter 19. In a moment, the verse, uh, verse 16 will, is where I'll start reading. God spoke the Ten Commandments and carved them in stone at Mount Sinai in the time of Moses in the establishment of the Old Covenant with Israel. But now that the Old Covenant is ended and the New Covenant instituted in the blood of Jesus Christ, what are we Christians to do with the Ten Commandments today? Last week I posed that question to you and offered answers to it from Martin Luther and other early leaders from the Reformation in Germany in the 1500s. They said, among other things, Teach the Ten Commandments to everyone, especially to children. Use the Ten Commandments to show sinners their need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use the Ten Commandments to tell Christians how rightly to live the Christian life, what pleases the Lord. Use the Ten Commandments to help the Christian resist the allurement of false teachers with their false doctrine. So one of those uses of the Ten Commandments, that is, to show sinners their need of the gospel of Jesus Christ, has come to be called in theology the first use of the law, sometimes referred to as the pedagogical use of the law, referred to by John Calvin as the use of the law as a mirror, so that we can get a true reflection of what we look like morally. So consider that first use of the law with me today as the Lord Jesus used it, especially Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. And behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come And follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, 
with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So see the first use of the law in Jesus dealing with the rich young ruler. In saying the rich young ruler, I'm referring to more information that's given in, I think, Luke. Uh, this, this account is recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke, each one giving the same historical account and all accounts agreeing with each other, but some of them giving details that the others left out. The fact that this person was a rich, young ruler all comes out when all three of the Gospels are taken into account. See how the Lord Jesus made use of the law in this way when the subject is a person having eternal life, gaining eternal life. Now, not everybody knows this, but this person knew. This is one of the blessings of growing up in Israel or growing up anywhere where you have the Bible. You know things like that in the beginning, uh, God commanded Adam do not eat of this one tree, but Adam ate of it, sinned against God. God had promised Adam or threatened him, the day you eat of it, dying you shall surely die. And death came upon Adam when he sinned against God. And God ordained that we were all represented in Adam. And so we all died when Adam sinned and we sinned in him and with him. So that then for a person to have eternal life is no longer going to come naturally. Somehow we will have to get eternal life from God if we're to have it. Otherwise, what we have looked forward to is the death of this body that you know, we'll all have to undergo. And then the everlasting death after that. Um, not an annihilation where we don't exist. But no, a, a punishment where what we've earned from our sin is meted out to us forever. So uh, this man and anybody else who has the Bible or has, has heard about this knows to look for eternal life. So the subject is having eternal life, getting eternal life. That being the subject then, the Lord Jesus quotes from the law. Uh, how do what do I do to get eternal life? The subject being that, how do I get eternal life? The Lord Jesus went quickly to the Ten Commandments. You see, it's recognizable that he's quoting from the Ten Commandments and quoting from not the first table, but the second table. Um, he's, uh, it's recognizable he's quoting from the second table of the Ten Commandments along with the summary of that second table of commandments. Love thy neighbor as thyself. The Lord Jesus um, has taught elsewhere that to love God and to love your neighbor, um, all the commandments hang on those two things. Uh, from that we have learned to understand that the first four of the Ten Commandments are more directly about loving God the other six of the Ten Commandments more directly about loving other people. Although, um, in that we are all made in God's image, loving other people is indirectly also about loving God. 
the Lord Jesus quotes from the law, specifically the Ten Commandments, more specifically the second table of the Ten Commandments, plus its summary, but not the Tenth Commandment. Remember, the Tenth Commandment is, Thou shalt not covet uh, thy neighbor's everything, anything that belongs to thy neighbor. Uh, I'll just pause there and take, take note of this. The commandment is not, Thou shalt not covet. You know, in a desire to be even briefer, even shorter than the Ten Commandments already are, sometimes people will produce a shortened Ten Commandments in which the Tenth Commandment is just stated as just, thou shalt not covet. Um, but really, uh, you know, to, to desire to have something is not where the sin is, is not where the wickedness is. It's the rest of that statement that explains where the wickedness is. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, thy neighbor's anything. Um, it's not in the wanting to have some good thing that where the sin lies. It's in wanting to have what belongs to somebody else, what you can't lawfully have. You can summarize it as thou shalt not covet. Uh, the Apostle Paul does. Um, we'll make reference to that. Um, but just don't, just don't forget that it's the rest of it that explains what's wrong with that kind of coveting. But the Lord Jesus did not mention the Tenth Commandment as he listed um, those others, five through nine, but not ten, and also the summary statement. So the young man then claims to have kept them, obviously influenced by the Pharisees. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Lord Jesus was saying, you have heard it said, um, and then some of the time quoted sayings from the Pharisees and their tradition, uh, some of the, which they had added to the Bible and weren't so, but some of what the Lord Jesus quoted was from the Ten Commandments, not meaning there was anything wrong with the Ten Commandments, but meaning that the way the Pharisees handled them, thou shalt not kill... Well, as long as you don't actually take anybody's life, then you're obeying that commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, as long as you don't actually go with somebody you're not married to, you know, then, then you're not committing adultery. Obviously, ignoring the matters of the heart that thou shalt not kill also addresses hatred and anger that thou shalt not commit adultery also uh, addresses, addresses lust and other kinds of perversions. And so this young man obviously was under the influence of the pharisaical system of understanding God's law, including the Ten Commandments, for him to be able to say, well, I've just kept all those. Ever since I was little, I've always kept those. Which, of course, is possible if you're only dealing with them you know, on the surface. It's possible to go through life never you know, reaching out and grabbing and stealing and taking home something that doesn't belong to you possible to go through life and not do that. It's not possible to go through life never having done what on the inside amounts to that or never shirking in your work and or you know various things like that. So uh, but he he claimed to have kept them and it's, it's only true in the pharisaical way of thinking about it. So the Lord Jesus then um, 
put God's law to the rich young man in a way that is a rather obvious application of it and told him, well, one, one more thing then, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Go sell what you have and give it to the poor. I don't believe it actually says sell everything you have, but it says go sell that you have and give to the poor. Um, you know, there was a lot more poverty in that place and time than we have in, in the U.S. today, and the poverty was a lot worse, right? The poor were not just, you know, they can't get the premium cable channels. You know, the poor were, we haven't had much to eat today, and I don't see how we're going to get anything for tomorrow. That's how poor they were. You know, it, it was, we've got very little shelter, and we've got to have warm clothes even to just keep us warm as we walk to work or sleep overnight, and we've only got threadbare old clothes. That was the kind of poverty. And and so for somebody to be very wealthy and not to be relieving the poor around him, um, the idea that he should, should be a rather obvious application of God's law, um, possibly the 10th commandment that Jesus hadn't mentioned until then. There's a little book by Walt Chantry called Today's Gospel. Um, the today part has, is a, getting a little out of date because I think it was from the 1970s or so, but still. Um, uh, and, and, and that pastor gave the interpretation that the Lord Jesus starting to talk about selling your possessions and giving to the poor was his way of putting the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, to... Um, to this rich young man. And that's not standard, you know, not everybody thinks that. Um, that, that, that seems right to me, uh, that the, Jesus didn't mention, that didn't quote the 10th commandment, and then in this he starts to put the 10th commandment to the person's conscience. Um, some other people say that love thy neighbor as thyself, the summary of the second table, which, God, which Jesus has already quoted, is what he is now applying to the rich young man in telling him to sell what he has and give to the poor. Um, the Lord Jesus is not here merely quoting or citing God's law. He is now, in effect, preaching it to him, applying it to him, expounding it to him, um, the Lord Jesus just briefly quoted the other commandments that he has referenced. Um, but here, uh, he is applying it. Uh, you being as rich as you are, the poor being as bad off as they are, uh, if you want to know the way to eternal life, then, and you think you're obeying all the commandments, then obey this. You know, uh, sell what you have and give to the poor. In that, the young man's sinfulness was discovered or uncovered or revealed or made known. Uh, 
This young man, like the rest of them, would have gone to the synagogue every Sabbath and heard somebody in the Pharisaical mindset read from Moses and and speak about it. Um, now, sometimes it was Jesus himself who did that, and he wouldn't have heard this from him. But from most of them, he would have heard Moses' law read, and that would have been fine as far as it goes, but then it would not have been preached like this. It would not have been preached to him in such a way that his um, conduct was really addressed, that matters of where his heart was were really addressed by the preaching of the law. This wouldn't have been the usual way that he heard the law put. It would have been put in such a way as to excuse people like him, to praise people like him, uh, to give people like him cover uh, for their sinfulness. But this kind of use of the law, saying to the young man, to the rich young man, sell what you have and give to the poor, um, this this lays it all out there. Uh, he apparently does not have the love for his neighbor that he has for himself. Uh, apparently, those things that he has, that really kindness, love, the generosity of God toward him would have taught him to part with and share with the poor, but he's holding tightly to them. Um, those those things are now revealed by the Lord Jesus preaching essentially the law to him. The young man at that point stopped saying, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And stopped saying, I've already obeyed all God's commandments ever since I was a kid. He stopped saying those things. So, so there you see um, in the Lord Jesus' dealings with the rich young ruler the first use of the law. The use of the law to show sinners their sinfulness. Sinners who think themselves righteous already. Who consider themselves to be keepers of God's law then the law is used to show them they are not really keepers of God's law. Um, they are breakers of it. They're not really righteous in God's sight. What God requires by the law, when rightly understood, when fully expounded, when forcefully applied, uh, then the, then the sinner has to realize he's not righteous. I'm going to turn next to Romans chapter 3. We won't be at all surprised to find the apostles of Jesus Christ teaching the same things that he taught in some of the same words and also at more length and in other words as the Holy Spirit carried them along. We're going to see the first use of the law again in Paul's doctrine about sin and sinfulness and need for salvation and in his own testimony about his experience, his testimony about what happened with him. 
So Romans chapter 3, I'll start reading in verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law says, saith it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by law is the knowledge of sin. That one little phrase there is kind of uh, really the summary of what's meant in this first use of the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. You can then other places in the Bible it says all kinds of differences that there could be male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. I think Jew and Gentile is the one in particular meant here. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath sent forth a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. The rich young ruler that we just read about was typical of how people are. It wasn't just him that was like that. People think and say things that reveal they consider themselves good enough to have eternal life. Or they say things that reveal they don't think there is such a thing as eternal life, or they deny that there is, or that say such things that say things like they don't believe there's a God, or they deny they, they think there's a God, or something like that. One way or another, people are thinking things, you know, in their own minds, and saying things, if it comes up in conversation, or they sometimes bring it up, that, that reveal they really are thinking they do not have a problem here. Um, as to what's going to happen when they die, well, they, the way they talk, they're, they're okay. Um, and they don't really need to be saved by God through Jesus Christ. They're okay They've somehow saved themselves or they don't need saving, something like that. And you know what people say, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. Um, I haven't done all the bad things that Hitler did. And, and, you know, I'm not going to, I don't deserve any punishing. Or, you know, my grandpa was a preacher and I've always gone to church. Family relationship connections or religious things they've done. You know, in the context of a lot of us and people who grew up around here, it's, you know, when I was a kid, I went down front and prayed the prayer. And so that's, you know, that's, that's good. Um, those kind of things, and of course, many others, you know, sitting around talking, you can come up with lots of things you've heard people say, or maybe you used to say, or possibly 
things you still think or still say along those lines. But somehow people think things, say things that indicate um, they don't consider themselves um, subject to the wrath of God. They don't, they don't fear being under condemnation on the day of judgment. They're not thinking they're going to be punished forever in the lake of fire. Um, they have all kinds of things to say and think that indicate that's not, they don't think that's a problem. Now, they need all of that self-justification to be cut off if ever they're going to see their need to be saved. From all the things they have to say about how there's no problem like that in their case, you know, they need to be quiet from all of that. They need to stop thinking all of that and, and, and stop saying all of that. Um, they need it to be that they stop this constant stream of self-justification, excuse-making, repeating of lies. They need to stop all of that. And all thoughts they have that they are not guilty before God of anything deserving going to hell, they need to change their mind about that and realize they are guilty of plenty and they are are going to be condemned in a day of judgment, and they are going to be thrown to the lake of fire. Um, that's what they really need if ever they're going to be saved. If they don't think they need any saving, well, then they're not going to look into being saved. Well, the law does that. You see in what we just said, in what we just read, by the law is the knowledge of sin, verse 20. What the law says, it says that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You know, what's needed is for somebody to be saying, yeah, I haven't done that bad of stuff. I'm better than so-and-so, and I'm sure, you know, the man upstairs and me, we've got an understanding and I'm going to go be with him uh, when I die, you know, they need, they need to stop saying all of that. And they, you know, they need to be, they need to be told, um, thou, shalt, thou shalt not commit adultery. And, and if they say, yeah, I never do. Yeah, you, boy, everybody really needs to, but I haven't, so that's why I'm going to be okay. You know, then they need to be, they need to be told, you, you can't, Get rid of your wife because you she's not as young as she used to be, and get some younger woman, and just because you got a divorce, you think that's not wrong and it's not adultery. No, it is. You getting rid of your husband or getting rid of your wife because you don't like him anymore, and getting somebody else, doesn't matter what legal procedures you go through, that's adultery. And if the person's still talking and still thinking, you know, yeah, I'm fine. You know, the person needs to be told, just because you haven't gone and actually gone and been with a woman that's not your wife, when you're thinking about that and desiring that and wanting that illicit thing in your mind, you are committing adultery in your mind and in your heart when you do that. Um, that person needs those things put to him and preached to him. 
Um, you know, it, it doesn't always work for it just to be quoted. And so God didn't send Nathan the prophet to David and say, David, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill. You know, he went and told him the parable of the rich man who had taken the poor man's one lamb and killed it. And and David David grasped the the sinfulness of that and the wrongfulness of it. And then by the word of the Lord, Nathan said, you're that man, thou art the man. And, and so it, it, it sometimes needs to be preached to people, not just cited. I mean, citing it is good, quoting it is good, um, but the law needs to be applied, um, which can be done, which was done by the Lord Jesus himself, which is done by the apostles, as we could look into, um, which, you know, you can pray for me about. I want to do more and better about that. This has been dawning on me over the years, and I've been understanding this better, and I want to make that my practice better. And then, you know, in your homes, um, the, the teaching of the Ten Commandments to those under your care is good. But also the explaining of them, the applying them to them. You know, the times when your children do something wrong, uh, there's opportunity there to put to them. Do you realize that what you've just done, that really is... Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Let me explain how. And, you know, that's a, I've had that recommended to me, and I, I don't think I've done that real well with my kids, but I understand the rightness of it, and I'd, I'd like to be able to do that. Um, and so the law, sometimes just when alluded to, referred to, sometimes when quoted verbatim, Sometimes when expounded, preached, applied, it does those things that a person needs. It makes him know what sin is and that he is a sinner. It, it, it condemns him in his conscience. Um, let all the world become guilty before God. Well, it's referring to the person in his conscience, realizing his guilt, and then that his mouth be stopped, that he not be constantly thinking and saying all things that are self-justifying. Um, that's, that's what's needed, and the law does that. Now, um, I'm going to turn a few pages to Romans chapter 7, where Paul is testifying as to his experience he testifies about his experience when he was still in his sins um, and, and how he was converted and then testifies also to his experience now as a regenerate or born-again man, as a Christian still struggling with sin. Um, but Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid, or absolutely not. No, I had not known sin, but by the law. Let me pause there for a sec. A few pages ago, remember he said, by the law 
is the knowledge of sin. When he was laying down this doctrine, now he's testifying to his own case. I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust or covetousness, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So now I want to point your attention to some parallels between the experience of the rich young ruler and of Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul. And I would like I would like you to see how Saul of Tarsus theoretically, I don't mean actually, but I mean, you know, as to as to hearing the the accounts, they, that could have been the same person. Saul of Tarsus could have been that rich young ruler, and I don't mean he was. I don't even mean to put forth a theory that he was. Uh, I figure the Bible would say so if he if he were. I just mean the cases are so similar that it sounds like a, it sounds like the same person. You know, here you have a person who is a you know, prominent, well-off, leading man among the Jews who would say of himself, I've always kept the commandments because he's completely under the influence of that pharisaical way of thinking. And then when finally it is put to him in some way that he grasps, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's everything, then finally he understands really what sin is and that he is a sinner. His opinion of himself before was, I always keep the commandments. And then his opinion became, oh no, I haven't kept the commandments. And I think in the, in the Lord Jesus dealing with the rich young ruler and in Paul testifying, I think in both cases, at least in Paul's testifying, the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, is especially suited to that work. Um, because the other ones, there can be the excuse, well, I, I've done all that. Or I, or I didn't do any of that. But thou shalt not covet. Um, it, unlike some of the others, it kind of skips the actual action and kind of goes straight to inside, to the heart. And so Paul testifies, it was thou shalt not covet that got me, um, by which I had the knowledge of sin. Not the knowledge of the concept of sin, which he'd heard about ever since he was a little kid and could have, you know, probably explained to people, but really the knowledge of how bad sin is, where it is, not just in the actions, but in the heart, the knowledge of sin being in him himself. And notice that as the Lord Jesus, in this subject, he quoted from the Ten Commandments, here so does Paul. He only quotes one of them, you can see in other places in the same letter of Romans, he quotes several others. In this place, he quotes from the Ten Commandments, namely the Tenth Commandment. Uh, now, for whatever use this is to you, I won't insist on it, but it seems to me, seems to me that Paul is referencing 
the thing that we read in the Gospels about Jesus dealing with the rich young man. I think that Paul sees himself having been dealt with the Lord Jesus in the same way. Now, we're, we're seeing this first use of the law to, to tell the sinner of his sinfulness, to convince him of his need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw it in the Lord Jesus dealing with the rich young ruler. We see it in Paul's uh, doctrine of sin and of his testimony of his own uh, conviction of sin. And now let's see it in Peter's preaching, Acts chapter 2. I have turned with you to Acts chapter 2 so many times. I suppose your Bible might fall open to it there, unless it still unless it falls open to 1 Timothy, right? Um, but uh, Acts chapter 2 is very instructive to us on a number of things. Um, and, and hear this first use of the law in Peter's preaching. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is all so good. I don't want to miss, skip any of it. I'll just back up one verse, verse 21, Acts 2.21. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then I'll skip to verse uh, 36. Verse 36 Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay, so the people knew that Jesus of Nazareth had been uh, condemned by their council, their Sanhedrin, turned over to uh, the Roman authorities under Pontius Pilate, that, that his... Death had been demanded by the crowd that Pontius Pilate had had him crucified, that the Roman soldiers had crucified him. They all knew that. But they didn't think of it as that they had done something wrong. Um, you know, our, our Sanhedrin uh, condemned him. They must have found him guilty of blasphemy. That was the story. The Roman authorities crucified him. He must have been some sort of criminal um, so they, they didn't consider themselves to have done anything wrong. But here Peter puts it to them. This man was sent from God and had done nothing wrong. And you all know all the good he did, all the miracles he did. You know how the Bible tells about him and he's the fulfillment of it. It is easy to know that this person had done nothing deserving of death and should not be harmed, but you all had your part in having him crucified unjustly. Now, that is not a quoting of thou shalt not kill. 
but it's a preaching of it. It's an applying of it. It's an expounding of it and applying it to their conscience. You have done something and you don't think of it as wrong, but I will preach to you the wrongness of what you have done. You have disobeyed God's commandment, thou shalt not kill. And the Holy Spirit working in them, the Holy Spirit working in Peter as he preached, the Holy Spirit working in grace in these sinners as they heard. Um, verse 37, Acts two thirty-seven. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brethren, what shall we do? This worked, right? And, and I don't mean to just be all pragmatic. You know, A plus B equals C. Um, things are not like that. God ordained means that we are to use, and he is blessed according to his will to, to have mercy on whom he'll have mercy when and where he pleases. He was pleased to do it in this way this time. That doesn't mean that every time we try to apply the law to some sinner, 3,000 are going to uh, be converted, right? You, you know, you, you can apply the law to some rebellious person and it doesn't appear to be any pricking of the heart going on. Um, but this is the means we use. And when God's pleased to, he causes somebody to be pricked to the heart. And, and these people said, what shall we do? They realize themselves sinners. And, and what a good question, right? I thought I was okay, but now I realize I'm not. What do I do? Um, and, and I'm now realizing that the very Son of God has come as Christ or Messiah. And I rejected the Son of God when he came. Well, what am I going to do now? Um, maybe you should ask that of yourself. Maybe up until now in your life, you've heard of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, many times, and you've been told believe in him, and up until now you never really have. Well, you could ask yourself, what do I do then? What do I do if, if I have rejected the Messiah when it was put to me? Well, um, Peter said, verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You have despised the grace of God in Jesus Christ up until now and not realized that everything you were doing toward Jesus has all been sin against God? Well, then what are you supposed to do? Give up? Despair? Figure you're a goner? No. In the name of Jesus Christ, whom up until now you have despised, in his name, turn from all your sin and trust in God to forgive you your sins. And they will be forgiven. It's, it's very ironic, isn't it? You have despised and rejected, even had a part in killing Jesus Christ, but now, if you repent in his name and believe in him, you'll be forgiven all of that? It kind of seems like it shouldn't be that way. 
but thought about rightly, it profoundly fitting. Um, if he's the one you have rejected, then he's the one you embrace to be forgiven of your previous rejection. So, um, Peter preached that these men had broken God's law as to something in the second table. Um, there's not time to do so now, but you can you know, read later. Paul, here's Peter uh, in Jerusalem speaking to the Jews who know the Bible. But Paul will go far away and be in Athens speaking to the Gentiles who don't know the Bible. And then he'll preach to them that they have been uh, idol worshiping. He'll preach that they've been uh, worshiping by idols, making temples, and that God cannot be worshipped that way. He'll preach to them essentially the second commandment. He'll preach to them from the first table of the law. Again, not quoting it, but expounding it, applying it, preaching it to them. And many will reject, but some will believe. So you see the first use of the law um, in the preaching of the Lord Jesus, dealing with the rich young ruler, in the doctrine laid down by the apostles and testimony of their own conversion, and in the apostles' preaching, uh, bringing those who thought they were okay to a knowledge of their sinfulness and need for the gospel. So what about you then? Uh, what are you going to do about this? Have the Ten Commandments given you a look in the mirror? Um, now, the Lord Jesus spoke about that, right? Because if somebody just hears his word and doesn't really pay any attention to it, he's like somebody who looks in a mirror and then just goes away and forgets what he looked like. Um, maybe you've done that before. But what about now? Uh, have you had a look in the mirror? We've talked through the first three commandments, lots of mention of the others. Do you see there in the mirror a sinner, someone who has not really been loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? someone who has not really been obeying the first commandment and the second commandment and the third commandment, um, do, you, do you realize that you have not even really come close to loving God as he deserves or other people as they deserve being made in his image? Um, what about Jesus Christ? What about when he looks in the mirror of God's law? Uh, what about when, when you analyze Jesus Christ in relation to the Ten Commandments? He has not broken any of God's, any of the Ten Commandments or any of God's law, but instead has obeyed it all perfectly. Uh, there is in him a passive righteousness, he has never done anything unrighteous and allowed all God's will to come upon him. It's also an active righteousness. He has always obeyed God's law um, all the time and in every case. 
He has not failed to love God or his neighbor, but has loved both God and his fellow men in the most profound and perfect ways. But then he, the righteous, who can look in the mirror and see sinless perfection, he suffered and died for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. We read a moment ago, God sent him forth a propitiation in his blood. He is to shed the blood for the forgiveness of the sins of sinners who deserve to shed their blood. He died for our sins on the cross. He was then buried, and then on the first day of the week, the third day, he rose again. And now, as you heard Peter saying, and as Paul said, he commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the good news. So, repent of all your law-breaking. Turn from it. Return to God with all your heart and be forgiven all your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved from God's wrath that is sure to come on the wicked. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you will be counted in God's sight as righteous as Jesus Christ is. So the first use of the law, the pedagogical use, is to use the law as a mirror showing the sinner an accurate picture of his moral state before God. The particular part of the law used like this by our Lord Jesus and his apostles is the Ten Commandments. Quoted verbatim, that's part of it. Paraphrased, that's part of it. But especially expounded, applied, preached. So, uh, what will we do with the Ten Commandments? What will we do with it today in these days of the New Covenant? Well, learn the Ten Commandments with me and teach them to your children and others um, who are whoever is under you. And learn to quote them verbatim as the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul could do and did do, and teach the children to be able to quote them verbatim. They may not understand what they mean, but teach them to know them. I mean, to yet yeah, to know what they say, and then learn yourself what they mean and what they apply, so that you then can paraphrase them to your children and others and use them as the Lord Jesus and his apostles taught us to use them in that first use of the law to show sinners their sinfulness so that they will understand their need for the Savior. Amen. Let's pray about that.